Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you that by it you make your people wise for salvation in Christ Jesus. Entirely a work of your grace, and so we pray that you will be at work by your grace in your spirit as we, as we face your word now, that, Lord, you will be at work in our hearts and our minds, helping us to know you better and love you more, that you would be our God. We ask these things for Jesus' sake. Amen. Moody teenager syndrome. You ever heard of that? Moody teenager syndrome. I'm sure the teenagers here don't ever suffer from that, but you, you might find it hard to believe I did in my adolescence. I, at times I suffered from moody teenager syndrome. I remember one particularly bad episode in my teenage years. Uh, for some reason, I can't remember why, we, I was going to uh, a friend's house, and my friend lived in another town, it was back in the UK, I had to catch the train to get there. Uh, and my mum so very kindly said, oh, oh, Tim, I'll give you a lift to the station. So how did I respond? Yeah, all right, fine. It was a cold day back in the UK, and she had noticed as she drove me in the car to the station that I'd forgotten my overcoat. Very worried, again, very loving, caring for my mum. Uh, so my so mum said, Tim, you, you forgot your coat. Are you going to be okay? Well, I'm fine. Just get me to the station. So my mum decided to teach her moody son a lesson. Pulled up onto the curb and said, fine. If that's the way it's going to be, you can walk the, the, the rest of the way. <laughs> yeah, go on. And she meant it. And so I got out of the car, slammed the door, and grumpily trudged all the way to the train station. I noticed as I walked through town there was a payphone, so I decided to, to call mum up. Told her, I'm not coming home tonight. Our relationship was really, really stretched that evening. Now, I did go home that night, thankfully, to my mum's relief. She was really upset. And the following morning, I came down to breakfast and I was expecting the scolding that I deserved for the terrible way in which I had acted the evening before. Mum sat down and looked at me and just said, I love you, Tim. Let's just put it behind us. Now, my mum is really not the passive-aggressive type. When she forgives someone, she means it. But I had been really awful to her that evening before. And so I wasn't sure. Am I re- are we really okay, mum? I was kind of treading on eggshells with her for the following week. She knows her son was just that much more helpful around the house as I, as I kept on wondering, are we really okay, mum? I'm sorry, I'm sorry, even though she'd already forgiven me. Maybe you can relate to that. You've, you've really upset someone and they've graciously forgiven you. It's such a shock and you're not quite sure if it's genuine. You can't quite believe it. You're treading on eggshells around them for a while. That's how Moses is feeling here as we come into Exodus 34. Uh, Just to remind you what we saw last week, Israel had really offended God. Oh, Despite his great deliverance of them, bringing them out from slavery in a foreign land and bringing them to himself in this place and making awesome promises to them giving them his, his good law, the law which they swore to keep when they first received it, all that the Lord has said, we will do. 
But then with Moses, their leader, out of their side again, they immediately turn to a lesser false god. They choose to trust in the works of their own hands rather than Yahweh who had saved them, building the image of a golden calf out of the gold that they owned and saying of that same calf, this is the God that delivered us out of the land of Egypt. They commit adultery against the God who had just saved him, them to himself. In fact, that's how Jeremiah pictures it later in the Old Testament, just up on the screen, Jeremiah 31, 34. That screen is probably a bit clearer. The covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. Oh, God is like a cheated husband here, having entrusted his name, his promises to a fickle, stubborn and faithless people. And so at first, God's desire was to treat them as they deserved, to cast them out of his sight. But Moses interceded for them, and God relented in his mercy. He, he told Moses that Israel would remain his people despite their sin. But Moses knew that God had every right just to cast them away from him. So he's still treading on eggshells before God as he's worried for his people. Can God really be this merciful? God, are you really okay? Would it really be possible for him to forgive and stand by this wicked people? And in his concern, in chapter 33, Moses made this incredible request of God. It's in chapter 33, verse 18. Just have a look at it. Moses said something quite startling. Moses said, please show me your glory. He says that to God. Moses is saying, God, show me what you're really like. Show me that thing that makes you so great. And he's doing it in the context of fear for his people. So he's saying, God, show me what makes you so great that I might have some hope that you will genuinely forgive your people. You will remain steadfast by them despite their sin. Moses is desperate for reassurance in this chapter. And that is exactly what God God grants him. Exodus 34, the very heart of it is reassurance. Firstly, God will reveal his character of grace. Then he will renew his covenant promises that he made to his people in the first place. And then finally, he will reaffirm his presence with them in an incredible way. But before Moses can receive that reassurance from God, preparations need to be made. Have a look in verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, Cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets, which you broke. Be ready by the morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on the top of the mountain. Moses had had taken the first two tablets of stone on which God had written his law for his people and having come down the mountain and seen what the people were doing, worshipping the golden calf, in his anger he threw them down and they had been smashed to pieces. And now God tells him here, prepare two new tablets of stone. It's a good start. What was lost in sin is already starting to be restored But Moses is in for much greater encouragement. He's asked to see God's glory, 
what it is that makes God so great. And having come up the mountain again to God, Moses is about to find out. The focus here, though, it's not on what, God, what Moses will see of the Lord. It's not presented to us in a visual way. But rather, it is what Moses hears about God by his word. It is by God's spoken word that Moses will learn the glory of the Lord. What makes God so great? That's our first reassurance. God's gracious character revealed. Come with me to verse 5. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. God proclaims his name to Moses. Again, it's the second time he's done this. You might remember back in Exodus 3, God made his name Yahweh known to Moses at this same mountain. And that name meant, I will be who I will be. I will be faithful to my word. But that was really bad news for Israel at this point in their relationship with God. Because what was God's word to them that he swore he would be faithful to? Those words when he first called them to himself were, if you obey me, then you will be my treasure possession. Then you will be blessed as my people. But they hadn't. They hadn't obeyed God. So if all that God cared about in his glorious character was the justice of his word being kept in all things, well, then Israel were doomed because they had disobeyed. They had broken the word of the Lord. And thankfully, God, as he reveals his name here, his glory, what makes him so great, well, he speaks of what is even more essential to him than justice, than his word being kept. If we look in verse 6, we have this glorious expression of God's character. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression, and sin. What a comfort that would have been to Moses in this situation that God is not just a God of justice who would bring judgment against all who disobey him, particularly the idolatry of his own people, but that God is a God who relents, who desires mercy, describes himself as merciful, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity, transgression and sin. This is what makes God so great. The fact that his mercy triumphs over his justice, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. In case Israel get the wrong idea, God still makes it clear, I'm not going to entertain those who persist in their rebellion against me, who harden their hearts against me and hold no fear of my name. See in verse 7, far more sobering verse, this briefer statement of God's justice, I will be by no means clear the guilty, 
visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. Uh, We had this same statement of God's justice back in the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20 verse 5, but with a small addition back then. It says again, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me. Oh, this is speaking of those who hate God generation after generation. So the guilty here, whom God will judge in justice and condemn, are both the father and the family who follow him in his sin. The father's like the captain. And, and where he steers, well, the whole ship, his family, will follow. If they refuse God's word, if they harden their hearts against him, well, then he would visit the sins of the father on the third and the fourth generation. It simply means he would, elect, he would allow the effects of the father's sin to take their natural course, hardening the hearts of, their chil- of his children and his children's children against him. You know, for us, if we are parents here this morning, this is one of the most sobering texts of Scripture. The more we allow sin to get the upper hand in our lives as parents, the more our children could well suffer for it. Yet we mustn't get too bogged down in the details here. You see, often we can be more shocked about what we hear about God in verse 7 of his fair justice rather than what is actually far more amazing here. The fact that God shows far more mercy than he ever judges. His steadfast love to thousands of generations, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin in comparison to the few generations that he will respond to in justice as they harden their hearts against him. The big message, what makes God so glorious, is that his mercy triumphs over his justice. He is the husband who runs after his adulterous bride, stands by her, and continues to love her despite her unfaithfulness. That's the first great assurance for Moses. As he worries for his people, given what they've done, would they remain God's people? Yes, they would. Why? Because God is merciful. It's at the very core of what makes him so great. And brothers and sisters, let me ask you, is that the God that you know? A God who relents, who desires mercy over and against justice, forgiving rather than punishing the guilty? I wonder how quick are we to bear his glorious character, his gracious character here as a church? Are we, as his people, slow to anger? We are bounding in steadfast love. Now, as those who know the greatness of God's love to us in the cross, does that show in the way that we treat one another? You know, I've, I've had some at St. Mary's, they've, they've come to me before with a complaint against someone else. And when I investigate it, I find out that it relates to an issue that took place years ago. But they've held on to that grudge for so long just made up their minds about that person from that, that one incident and they're not willing to give them a second chance. Just think, well, that's what they're like. They could never change. They're just going to be that way. How many second chances has God given us in our sin? How many times have we been forgiven by the blood of his son? Won't we bear with one another in love and show that love? that God has shown us to one another, forgiving? 
desiring mercy rather than justice? Oh, Moses, he, he asks to see God's glory and God reveals it to him. His glorious character and is depicted in grace. That his mercy triumphs over justice. It's a great assurance for him. Well, the second reassurance we see here, God's covenant promises renewed. Same promises that he had made back in Exodus 23, how he would deliver his people into his promised land. Where they are right now at Mount Sinai, this is just a pit stop. They're heading for another destination. They're on their way to the land that God had promised to them in which they would live securely with God as their God. They would know the blessing of his rule. They would be at peace with him. And thankfully now he reaffirms that promise despite their sin. But look in verse 11. God says again to Moses, Observe what I command you this day. Behold, I will drive out before you the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. All these the nations that are already in the land that God would drive out, that his people would know peace with him there. But here we see a renewed emphasis when God makes this promise. He's got one key issue with his people at heart here. See, back in chapter 23, where God had first made this promise, he spent just one verse, one verse on the idolatrous practices of the nations. But now, in the light of what his people had done by committing idolatry against him, we have this repeated warning. Israel are to resist exchanging God for the gods of the nations as they go into the land. Just scan with me. Verse 13. Verse 13. You shall tear down their altars, break down their pillars, and cut down their asherim. Verse 15. Lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, and when they whore after their gods and sacrifice to their gods, and you are invited, you eat of his sacrifice. Verse 17. You shall not make for yourselves any gods of cast metal. Oh, God would still deliver his people into the land of his promise where he would care for them and provide for their every need, but that future with him in the land would depend on their attitude to him. No idols. God alone would be their God. He alone would be their ultimate security if they were going to continue in his blessing. And so God goes on, he he reaffirms the the rituals that Israel were to observe as a constant reminder that God was their God and no other. Just going to focus on one of them in verse 22. Let's read verse 22 with me. Commands Moses for the people, you shall observe the feast of weeks, the first fruits of wheat harvest and the feast of ingathering at the year's end. Three times in the year shall all your males appear before the Lord God, the God of Israel. Three times a year, once Israel were in the land, every man was to drop what he was doing, and all of them were to gather in the same place to give thanks to the God who had provided for them. Now that would really show that Israel feared God and trusted in him and his security above everything else. Every man had to drop what they were doing three times a year. Every soldier 
standing at his post on the borders of Israel, charged with the security of the land, every watchman standing down from his post on the same day to gather in one place. Israel, in the land, humanly speaking, would be defenseless on each of these three days in the year from the nations around them. That's why God promises them in verse 24. He reminds Moses, I will cast out nations before you and enlarge your borders. No one shall covet your land. No one's going to try and grab it when you do this. When you go up to appear before the Lord your God three times a year. It's, it's like Barack Obama. It's like the President of the United States withdrawing all of the troops from the demilitarized zone, that border between North and South Korea, all on one single day, bringing them back, telling them to stand down, and asking his generals to trust him. Don't worry. The border will not be breached. This would really test Israel's faith in God. It would really reveal, do they trust him? And his word and his promise above their own worldly securities, the weapons they would otherwise be holding in their hands. Would they really love him above all? Well, friends, as God's people today, we still live in a world full of idols that can distract us from trusting in and living for God above all else as his people. You know, here in Malaysia, some still do bow down to statues and altars. And as God's people Though difficult at times, we are to avoid those kinds of practices. But for many of us, our battle with idolatry will be far more subtle than that. And just read these words from Tim Keller. They're very perceptive as he speaks of the ever-growing secular culture in which we live. He writes, What is an idol? It is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God, anything you seek to give, to, you seek to give you what only God can give, anything so central and essential to your life that should you lose it, your life would hardly feel worth living. An idol has such a controlling position in your heart that you spend most of your passion and energy, your emotional and financial resources on it without a second thought. It can be family. Children, career, making money, achievement, critical acclaim, saving face or social standing, secure and comfortable living, beauty, brains, even your success in Christian ministry. An idol is whatever you look at and say in your heart of hearts, if I have that, then I'll feel my life has meaning. I know I'll have value. I'll feel significant and secure. You know, there are many ways to describe that kind of relationship to something, but perhaps the best one is worship. When we displace God with anything else in our lives from this world, make no mistake about it, that is the golden calf that we worship. I remember one brother from the UK who was going through a really stressful time at work. He had gone in into the, to, into the habit of taking a, a shot of whiskey each night to calm his nerves before he went to bed. He, he didn't get drunk or anything, just got into the habit of, of taking a drink to calm his nerves. And yet over time, as he did this night after night, that habit started to take control of him. 
He noticed that he wasn't able, when he wasn't able to take that little drink each night because he was too busy or too tired or, or he just faced an empty bottle, he would be so irritable the next morning. He would feel so insecure. He'd be far more harsh on his own colleagues, quick to get angry. And only by taking that drink again each evening could he find a sense of calm and control. Oh, the whiskey, it was meant to to serve him. It was meant to be a quick fix for, for his nerves. But in the end, he started to serve it. He became dependent on it simply to get by. It had become to him an idol. His ultimate security, what he was hoping in for true rest. Of course, it was a security that couldn't deliver, as any idol can. The calm that it brought to him lasted but a moment. A God that could never bring the peace that my friend really hoped for. God alone is true security, no matter what we might face in this life. He alone has, has promised he's working in all things for the good of those who love him, who fear his word and who seek his will and, and trust in him. He alone has given us eternal security, no matter what we face from day to day in his son. So that even death itself cannot separate us from God's love. Friends, only God, the God that we were made to know and find our rest in, can bring us the contentment that we long for in this life, whatever we face. As we surrender our hearts to him, as we trust in his word and live for his kingdom. You know, maybe right now we realize there is something in our life that means far too much to us. It's an idol that we've staked our lives upon. A love of money that won't last. A power that will eventually dwindle. Or a love of reputation before men that will come to nothing one day. But we feel we just you know, can't live without it. If God were to take that away, my life would not be worth living. Won't you do what my friend did? Share that struggle with a brother or sister you trust so that they can pray with you as, as I prayed with my friend when he... Uh, confess to me, help you give back that affection to God, and redirect your hearts to him and the worship that he is due. That is what Israel are called to do here, to trust in God rather than anything else as he graciously remains with them, providing for their every need as they live in his presence. Yes, God promises he will stay with them despite their sin. We've got this final assurance of that in these verses in 29 to 35. God's holy presence reaffirmed. Let me ask you, when was the last time that someone could tell something amazing had happened to you just by looking at your face? Just by looking at the expression on, their, on your face, they could tell something amazing had happened to you. I remember the evening I asked my uh, uh, Melissa, now my wife, thankfully, to, to marry me. She said yes. And we wanted to, to share that good news with family and friends. And, of course, we shared it with the family first, but, but then we were looking for friends to tell. And the first person we could find outside my own family uh, was Andrew. And as soon as uh, we, we kind of burst into his office, uh, and as soon as he saw us, well, no words actually needed to be said. He, he saw the big grins on our faces. We were beaming. He knew what was happening. Tim and Melissa were getting married, and they were very joyful about it. Well, 
as Moses returns down the mountain, having been given this great reassurance that God will remain with his people, his mere appearance is enough to evoke a very strong reaction from Israel. Have a look in verse 29. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, and as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses, and behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. You remember how God had revealed his glory to all his people before uh, back in Exodus 20 and Exodus 19, as he, as he spoke the Ten Commandments to them, uh, they witnessed the great fire and the thunder through which God speaks to them directly. And what was their response? Reverent fear. And here again, as they see Moses' face and God's glory, as it were, as an afterglow shining off it, well, so they fear as well. Moses is the one who would now speak God's words to his people. God has shown them again that he will be key to their relationship with him. He will speak God's words and they will only be blessed as they trust and obey him. It's a great assurance for Israel. God making his presence again known in the face of his chosen servant. And yet tragically as we know Israel would not continue to enjoy the presence of God indefinitely. Because in the stubbornness of their hearts, they they did not keep the law that God gave to them to enjoy him as his people. Oh, he was so patient with them over hundreds and hundreds of years, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love for his people who constantly turned away from him. But Israel just grew in wickedness kept on going back to the idols of her neighbors, living for the things of this creation rather than the God who had reconciled them to himself. Despite his love, his mercy, his provision. And so in the end, they are thrown out of the land of promise. God's covenant with them would not endure. And we see that that is the case even in these verses. See in verse 33. Verse 33. You read this strange thing. I mean, Moses has appeared. The glory of the Lord is, is present on his face. And verse 33, and when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. Even at this stage, Moses knew to conceal his face that bore the glory of God. The veil was actually only removed when he was either speaking to God in his presence or speaking God's word to his people. And we find out why in our New Testament reading in 2 Corinthians 3 verse 12. Paul writes, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Not like Moses who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. Paul tells us the reason Moses put a veil over his face was not to conceal God's glory from the people as it shined from him. It was to conceal the fact that that shine, that glory would fade over time. This revelation of God's glory is only temporary. It points forward to something far greater. It's the great, greater hope that Paul speaks of here in verse 12. Since we have such a hope, 
God's glory, his mercy, his steadfast love, as well as his concern for justice, because now it's been revealed in another face. Further down in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 6, For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Friends, today our hope of knowing God in all his glory and enjoying the rest that we were made for with him, it's not rooted in trying to keep a law we can't in our sin. We're no different from Israel. Left to our own devices, we will live for idols. Remember one minister once saying, our hearts are idol factories. We will constantly look to other things for satisfaction rather than the God who made us. Our only hope is Jesus. God himself who came to dwell with us and make God's glory known to us, ultimately in his cross, where we see God's glory most revealed. A God who is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Where do we see his mercy? We see it in Jesus and his cross, who in his love for us took the penalty that we deserve for the every idol that we have worshipped rather than God, so that we might escape it. Where do we see God's grace, his undeserved favor lavished upon us now as his people? Well, it's by him clothing us as sinners in the righteousness of his son and removing our stubborn hearts from before him and giving us new hearts by his spirit that desire him as our Lord rather than sin. So that now as his people in Jesus, we have the promise of life. We have that eternal security of God's rest, enjoying him forever. The very thing we were made for. God has shown us steadfast love for sinners now in Jesus and his bloody cross. So let me ask you, what is your assurance that you're okay with God? You know, in those moments when we know we've betrayed him, as Israel did, we've exchanged his glory and we've put our security in money, or we've put our security in our career, we've put our security in anything but him. And his promised word to us. And we've lived for that thing rather than for the God who has saved us to himself. Brothers and sisters, every time you fall for an idol, don't believe that thought in your mind. Well, now I've got to do something more to make it up to him. I've got to tread on eggshells around him. I've got to work harder to make myself right with him. Every time you see an idol in your life, look ten times more at the cross where Jesus paid the debt of your sin in full. He alone is our assurance for forgiveness and new life with God now. So we must trust in him. As those who have done that, we are now called as God's people, reconciled to him, to know him and enjoy him, to give him the right worship he is due, to live day by day with him as our ultimate security and our greatest joy, beholding his glory as we look to Jesus by his word that testifies to him. As we see more and more how his promises are so much greater than the idols out there that could never satisfy. To trust and obey Jesus in the power of his spirit is not a dull thing. It is to know true freedom. To rejoice in him and the eternal security we have now by his blood. 
Friends, let's be those who sing in truth. Jesus, lover of my soul, all-consuming fire is in your gaze. Jesus, I want to know you. I will follow you all of my days. For no one else in history is like you, and history itself belongs to you. Alpha and Omega, you have loved me, and I will share eternity with you. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you have revealed how great you are in the glory of your grace to us sinners in Jesus. We thank you that we can know that you are a God of mercy, of grace, of steadfast love, because you came in the person of your Son, who offered himself to pay for every sin we've committed by his blood, that we might be forgiven, we might be reconciled to you, the God we were made to know and enjoy. I pray for us as your people that you would graciously continue to reveal to us the rivals in our hearts that compete for love of you. That, Lord, as we see them, we would repent. We would resolve to trust in Jesus and his cross again. And in the light of that great love that he has shown us there, so would we love him all the more, be putting those idols away, and so living faithfully as your people, as we do look forward to the day when you will call us home, and we will enjoy you in the presence of your glory forevermore. I ask these things for Jesus' sake. Amen.